Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, hometown of Zondervan Publishing, the publisher of the NIV Bible. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. Jeremy Bean is off. He's currently investigating the large quantity of porn found in Osama bin Laden's compound. <laughs> they needed an expert. Right. Like I see nothing Hot wrong. American women. <laughs> yes. um, in this episode, a counter-apologetic segment that answers the question, who watches the watch god? Also, some psych of religion on morality, some props and shit list, and a journey to the world's end in polyatheism. But first, I have a sad announcement to make. This may very well be the final episode of Reasonable Doubts. Yep. Not because Justin's relationship with Yoko Ono threatens to drive a wedge between us, but because... He's better than us now? Yeah, no kidding. We are less than a week away... From the end of the world. Can we put a rapture clock on our website? <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, we to be that. fair, the end of the world isn't until October 21. That's true. No, you're right. I guess I'm overselling it. Well, for, uh, yeah, I don't think. <laughs> but we'll have a, we'll have a good, we'll have a good five months or so uh, we'll, yes. we'll, without our, our Christian friends. I think it's fairly safe to say we're not among the elect. I, <laughs> I rarely venture predictions. Well, With this amount of certainty. Let's face it. <laughs> atheists can never get elected in this country. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, if you haven't heard, uh, May 21st of 2011 is the beginning of Judgment Day. And if you haven't heard, go outside. <laughs> yes. There is. Have you have you seen the billboards? Mm-hmm. We have billboards all over the place here in West Michigan. I got one I, just on the road for me. Do you really? I was visiting my uh, sister-in-law up in Rockford. For the rapture people? For the rapture yeah. people. Here? Here in West Michigan, in Rockford, there I passed two of them. When they like have a – do they say things like, well, put it on our credit. We'll pay you later. <laughs> do, they, do they like think they're not going to have to pay for that or what? I really hope they are doing that. Well, actually, there's there's a story of uh, one gentleman in New York City who spent yeah. um, $140,000 for an ad campaign for signs on subways, cars, and bus shelters uh, declaring that the world is going to end because he wants to – this is a 60-year-old man. Spending all of his life savings because he wants to let people know that the world is coming to an end and they still have a chance to be saved. So the uh, see, I'm so conflicted on that because some like some part of that is like if they really believe that, then right. you know they should be doing that, and and that's kind yes. of a a nice thing in a, some twisted way, but. 
Well, and I would like to make the offer, and this goes um, directly to um, oh, what's his name? Camping. Uh, yeah, Harold Camping, mm-hmm. who is the head of Family Radio, which is, by the way, a group of uh, 37 radio stations, Christian radio stations, yeah. all of which I was really surprised. It was much bigger than I thought it was. network. Yeah. yeah. And as a spokesperson for WPRR, I would like to say, Mr. Camping, if you really believe that the world is going to end on Saturday, you can turn over all of your radio towers to WPRR beginning on May 22nd. If the world doesn't end, then we will have control of your radio stations. And if it does end, then you're not losing anything, if, right? If the world yeah. if the world didn't end and some good local folk turn on their usual family radio, <laughs> and one day the camping show is there, the next day your show is there, that would end the world for them, right. I think, right there. Yeah, so I, they, we should also volunteer to take care of his dog. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> we will take your pets. Also, um, if you truly believe, and I can't imagine most of our listeners do, um, to their credit, that the world is going to end on Saturday, May 21st. If you make a donation... Donations can be sent. Absolutely. <laughs> make, make a donation to us anything over $500. If the rapture does occur, we will turn over that money to whatever cause you would like to designate it to in advance if the rapture occurs. If the rapture does not occur, we will keep the money and spend it on uh, booze and... Uh, it's and a whole new Pascal's wager. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a Fletcher wager. Well, but that's the interesting thing, right, is is we are in this interesting situation now, us, us heathens, who couldn't we just take Pascal's wager for a week and say, hmm... I guess if the world's going to end on Saturday, I can pretend to believe for a few days. I'm not really I the way it works. A lot of us so. have done that for many years. Yeah. <laughs> Even go back for a few days. Yes, yes, but yes. It's very reminiscent of our, our listeners are probably familiar with in the history books of the, the Great Disappointment in 1847 <laughs> when uh, William Miller had followers. Uh, in the tens of thousands, I think, that, that uh, followed him and uh, was in New York, I believe, where they were located, that they uh, sold their – many of them sold their possessions and houses and barns and such yeah. and went on top of a, of a hill and waited for the uh, – Wait for the end times, and people did the same. They didn't have radio then, but they did the same right, thing. Right. They probably had a group right. of columnists, like three people mocking them. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, and they went up and waited and were disappointed. Well, and even more recently, um, in 1994, a uh, a group believed that the world was going to end on what was that, October 6th of 1994, something like that. Well, this is the uh, uh, Harold Camping. It's the same group, yeah. Yeah. which is. Really astounding because the world didn't end in 1994, <laughs> as I recall. Now, now what he did, he 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 interpreted a reference in John 21 uh, verses 1 through 14 mm-hmm. about the disciple being roughly 200 cubits from the shore of the Sea of Galilee, right. a, as meaning that <laughs> that there would be 2,000 years between the the birth and the second coming of Jesus. Right. So he right. estimates that Jesus. Was born on, you know, roughly October four of of uh, seven. Yeah, I think. Y- yeah, and yeah. so he just extrapolates that. That's that's really where he gets his math. Yeah, and, <laughs> and he claims that. And then when it didn't happen, and all of his, like in the eighteen hundreds, all of his followers were gathered on a hill with their Bibles open, just waiting for something to happen. And then another great disappointment. It didn't happen. 
he said, well, okay, maybe I got the math wrong. Right, right. But this time, he has had nuclear physicists (laughs) and other people check his math. So he is sure that this time Hell his yes. math is right, as if that were the only problem with making this well, prediction. When he came like out with that, that rearranging deck chairs, is <laughs> yeah, right. When, when he came out with that 1994 prediction, he he released a book titled 1994 with a question, <laughs> with mark. A question mark. So I, I I've been <laughs> waiting for the 2011. You're right, but right. I I've not seen it I at my local library. No, instead they're doing a bus tour. Right. Correct. They've got the buses that are going all over the country. There's a, there's a good website. Souls. I think on uh, if you look up like history of failed prophecy, I believe it's religious tolerance it has a whole okay, uh, yeah. a whole listing yeah. of the dates in the past two millennia of of predictions that have gone wrong. Uh, and so the, you know, there's, yeah. there's they tend sometimes they cluster around like the the first millennia or. Uh, or and now around, coming up, we have 2012. Yeah, there was a bunch there, of them. There was are, a bunch of them actually before. Well, the the Jehovah's Witnesses were big on end times about a hundred years ago, yes. 1914, and and so they kept. And there's a whole slew of dates where they mm-hmm. set a specific date and then backed it up a bit and set another right. one. So they they obviously wised up a little bit in that they weren't setting yeah, a specific. They dates. have actually now backed off and said, okay, I, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna make a prediction anymore. Yeah, almost admitting how foolish they they had been. That's mm-hmm. that's what's I. Think think unusual about this one is that the degree their specificity one that they mm-hmm. set a specific date and two the the degree of i guess airtime and popularity they've been getting yeah uh, yeah yeah i i don't know like where does all that money come from for all these billboards all the that around is the thing and it's it's not just national it's it's international it's the world. oh yeah um because that's a, i mean i realize billboards aren't millions of dollars but when you have hundreds of thousands of them when you're reaching out all the way to right. to West Michigan and wherever else they're going, they're spending a lot of money. Yeah. But I, is this like a going out of sale mentality? Like <laughs> everything so. must go because why hold on to our money? Yeah. So they're just buying the sign. What happens to Harold Camping next week Sunday? Well, Richard Dawkins apparently, according to the Washington Post, says that he will inevitably – Explain on May 22nd that there must have been some error in the calculation. Yeah, the the the, the big um, uh, debate within people like uh, circles like ours is how what's going is predicting what will happen to the followers afterwards. You know, because some yeah. people are, are saying that they will uh, be shattered by this. Other people are saying like that 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 they will just simply say they got the calculation. We have wrong. some historical precedent though for this kind of. Indeed, some of uh, some of our uh, listeners might also remember the series of studies about 50 years ago uh, by Leon Festinger, the failed prophecy studies. This is uh, uh, where they actually had a psychologist. Uh, it was the origin, actually, of cognitive dissonance theory. Hmm. Uh, his the theory an of, appropriate place for it to come from. Yeah. Hmm. So Festinger's team actually infiltrated some groups or became joined up with groups that were making. Pseudo uh, religious end times predictions. They believed, for example, that the uh, that they had uh, basically outer space aliens, but it was quasi religious. Let's say that right. that, that predicted the cataclysm, the, uh, the the earthquakes and floods. Basically, the world was going to be wiped out. Mm-hmm. And they received these predictions. By their leader was a woman who wrote uh, used automatic writing to write the oh, communications. Oh, good down. old automatic writing. Yeah. So they would deliver. She would go into kind of whatever this trance and do the writing. And then they would interpret the writings. But there was a couple different groups. Um, Festinger called them the Lake City Group. I think it might have been Chicago. But uh, there was also a University City Group that was separate. But they uh, started getting these – a date was set. 
that the cataclysm would happen, that the members started to sell their stuff and they weren't particularly interested in outsiders or giving interviews to the press or whatnot. But okay. as the date approached, they not, all – Not like camping who was out no. there loud and proud. No, no. And, and so they all gathered in the house when the date approached and the clock was ticking, you know. And so if you read Festinger's account of this, it's, it's like um, – you know, the, the members sit around and then the hour tension builds, the hour comes and mm-hmm. passes. And so what happened was that she eventually uh, th- delivered another message saying that the end had been postponed indefinitely because right. of their faith. Yes. So the way that they interpreted that was that their uh, willingness to believe wholeheartedly in this end saved uh, the, the world. Saved them from so the cements yeah. it even more. Yeah, and they, and they actually became, then they started to proselytize uh, overtly. The, the, mm-hmm. the reporters were, of course, there to mock them and stuff like that. And so they, they came out and were doing all kinds of interviews. So Festinger's theory was basically that when you are dug in that much, mm-hmm. there's no way to go. That right. You're not going to be able to say, oops, I was wrong. Uh, that, that the only way out is to increase belief Right. And even more, or to get other people to believe it, which also solidifies your belief. So we don't see a lot of people who, when it doesn't happen, going, oh, my gosh, I was wrong. I've been lied to all this time and, yeah, and rejecting it. They just dig their heels in further. There's There's been some revisions since then. Uh, some people have said that it doesn't happen. The conditions under which uh, for Festinger's group were very specific. The group was, for example, very cohesive. Right. They were very uh, – and so uh, that you very require – Very insular. Yeah, and that you require social support, for example, to yeah, maintain belief. Right. But uh, since then, other people have theorized that, yes, some people actually do say, oh, wow, we were wrong, uh, and and leave the movement. So there's been sure. obviously a lot of doomsday movements since then. Right. Now, isn't it, isn't it true that uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have had several failed uh, mm-hmm. prophetic well, prophetic failures? Uh, in, in I think it was like 1925, um, all throughout the 1900s, yep. and um, – and when those failed, uh, isn't it true that their membership actually increases? Yeah. Well, some well, clearly though, they've been up. Um, the what's the other one? Oh, Seventh Day Adventist actually right, had a history right. of that yes. sort of thing too, uh, which is something that a lot of people don't know. Is that the one of the conditions actually that is that like we mentioned a few minutes ago, they stopped making specific dates, which mm-hmm. makes it harder to to literally disconfirm. Right. One of the one of the other popular things that happens is that the people will say the prophecy wasn't fulfilled literally. Obviously, the oh, world yeah. is still here, but it's fulfilled it. spiritually, and yes. so they would say, for example, that. Uh, the kingdom, previous kingdom, did end, but a new kingdom has begun within us, or something right. that allows them to kind of, you know, uh, ooze out of the, the the literal end of the world right. aspect. So there's that's what I mentioned is that some people are not predicting which would be with this group the way out. Would it be some people will just say I was wrong? Would it be that they said they got their math wrong? Right. Will it be that some people would say, well, our faith saved it, and so God postponed the rapture because so many people came to Christ? Well, some people say yes, it, well, the the world did end, but it was a metaphys or a spiritual right. type. Or you could have the re- the reverse of that, and you can blame it externally, and say that you know people weren't prepared right. for it. There was so, not enough people, so so God maybe pushed it right. extended it so they could get more followers, maybe. Yeah, and with, with Harold Camping, that it's always a possibility too that he could say, well, it, because this is the day that Judgment Day begins. Yeah. 
and we have this five-month period. So mm-hmm. it buys him some time to say, right. judgment has started. You yep. may not notice it yet because yep. you're not perceptive enough to see what's going that, on. That's one way that the most of the left-behind uh, millions of left-behind right. readers do is that they say that we're in the end times, but they don't mm. specify exactly when the end of the end times is or the beginning right. of right. the But as Tim LaHaye said, means. <laughs> Barack Obama is probably not the Antichrist. Probably. We have good reason this, to believe. <laughs> a lot of them actually anchored on the creation of the state of Israel. So they, yep. a lot of the earlier clocks they said were wrong. When you point out, for example, that many his, you know, through the past millennia predictions have been wrong, they would say yes. But what makes this one different is in 1947 or whatever, the state of Israel was created. Therefore, that was the one big anchor event that the people of the Jewish people are back in their homeland. And now the clock can start to run. Right. Um, I was this week. I was watching a documentary with my wife called "Waiting for Armageddon," and it, it's not about this group. You guys must have fun home nights. <laughs> oh, we like our documentaries, um, and uh, it it's about a group of evangelical Christians who make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and they're um, waiting for Armageddon, um, as the title would suggest. They're not saying it's going to be this day. But at one point, one of the women chastises her daughter because her daughter dares to suggest that the end of the world might not happen before her next birthday. Oh, so there, these are people – and this is a very real mindset for a amazingly large portion of yeah. people here in the United States. The figure I've seen is like uh, – uh, I think maybe as much as 30 or 40 percent believe that Jesus will return in their, in life, their lifetime. Lifetimes. Yes. So, I thought it was more than that. Or as it depends the, on how you phrase the, next the question. Fifty right. years or so. Or yeah, something. it depends on the, you, how you phrase right. the question, and then it, it peaked more also during the the the, the um, Y two K thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. So right. you do get ups and downs, but yes, I think most people. Well, I think that uh, they make fun of this type of group in the short term because it's like happening now. But uh, it's something that most people don't realize. But Sam Harris and other people have pointed out a, a, a large percentage of people think that it's going to happen. It's going to happen yeah. in the short. Term. One of the interesting things, especially from a psychological perspective of people in this movie, is one of the younger people said, yeah, I, I hope that the rapture happens within my lifetime, but I just hope it happens when I'm 80 or something. Because young uh-huh. people are not willing – yeah, they want this on one hand, but on the other hand, they still want to live their lives. Right. They still – Whereas the older generation, like Harold Camping, who is 88, 89 years old, is ready. He's like, let's end it now. Psychologically, it's much easier for him to say, yeah, bring it on. Yeah, a lot of the the, the um, like a sociological interpretation of when you do this apocalypticism is that conditions often get really bad and marginalized movements start to do this whole fantasy thing where they say, oh, man, it's bad now, but just you wait. You know, that's why we have like revelation in books like that is that when you have these communities where you have that are kind of oppressed or that, you know, the Romans are kicking some butt down there, that they formulate this fantasy of how it's all going to play out and they'll be vindicated in the end and that God's going to come back and kick butt and my views will be proven correct. So you you would predict in many cases that you would have the people whose life pretty much sucks as it is Mm -hmm. would be more likely to believe in in end times type stuff because it allows them to fantasize about how 
their tormentors are going to be tormented. Right. You know, and maybe that's why young people today don't want to buy into that because their life really isn't that bad. Right. You know, right. If you live in certain places, and uh, and that, but there is also this need met. If you interview some of these like left behind people, I have I show my class in psychology of religion this clip from like a sixty minute show where they were mm-hmm. interviewing the left behind people, and there is this there is some sort of psychological need being met where they do want it to happen. Um, because they want their views to be validated as well. That, yes, that, right. that it's not just enough to believe that when I die someday I'll go to heaven. They want to see some sort of physical, physical uh, manifestation of I was right, and you guys who made fun yes. of me, you were all, all that. Th- you know, and all you get to see how special I am, right? And I get to see you burning in hell to some yeah. extent. There's there's that going on too. Yeah, you get to play that movie through your head about how you're going to be vindicated. Right. right. Strangely enough, uh, the the Harold Camping Group, Harold Camping is actually an an annihilationist. He yes. doesn't actually think that we're going to be burning in hell. He thinks that the non-believers will just cease to exist. Well, I'm okay with that. That's kind of what I'm planning on doing anyway. (laughs) Not Saturday, but eventually. Eventually. So, huh, that's, well, you know, at least he's got that going for him. Although he also blames uh, gay pride, uh, or he says that gay pride is a symbol of the the coming apocalypse. It's not enough to have two world wars and uh, nuclear bombs and a holocaust, but gay pride pride and something. Just too much. But in, in... but Luke, going back to what you were talking about too, about this um, apocalyptic worldview of oppressed groups, that's what Christianity began as, right? They were mm. an apocalyptic cult, well, you, and they were they were very much on the run. Yeah, and a lot of the if you read a lot of uh, the Bible that way, a lot of the scholars they the, uh, they believe that Jesus would come back in their lifetimes. It wasn't as if well because he said so. Yeah, yeah. because he said so, and, and Paul and these people were were a lot of these rules that we now view as kind of pretty ascetic where that just this is going to only going to be for a while because he'll come back and then we'll all be lifted up. Uh, And so eventually take no thought for tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. The coming of the son of man is at hand. It's easier to live that way when you think it's just going to be a 10 years of of living uh, on your cloak and staff and then it'll all be over for sure. Well, um, we'll talk more about the end of the world at the end of the show. Uh, In the meantime, um, Let's talk some more about Yahweh. Yahweh, one of our our favorite gods to not believe in. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter apologetics. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so in this episode of counter apologetics, I want to return yet again to the moral argument for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. I want to supply a potentially new objection to this argument. Uh, in, past epi- in past episodes of the show, uh, the Doubtcasters have dealt with the Euthyphro Dilemma mm-hmm. uh, as an objection to divine command ethics, uh, which asks the question, is an act loved by God because it is good, or is an act good because it is loved by God? Uh, also pointed out was the problem of, of moral epistemology, uh, mainly the fact that because God clearly does not follow the same standard as, as we are held to, uh, and, and we are not privy to what standard God actually does follow, right. then we can't actually have any um, knowledge as to whether God is a, a good God or whether he's an evil God or what those could possibly mean. Right. So, you know, when people say God is good, such a statement is completely without justification or even any meaning, really. And if you want to know more about uh, those specific arguments, uh, you should check out episode 23, Planning a Shmaniga. 
Wow, going way name. back. That goes way back. You know, when I, often when I present that dilemma to class, they kind of glaze over and because they are literally not used to thinking of – typically what they would say is that there are standards and God just uh, chooses the right ones. That is that there are right. sets of good standards and he's always – those are his standards. Right. And they find it difficult to separate, but how does he know that those are the standards or, you know, right. could like he, he deviate? He must just be informing us of the set that he's aware of, but it's not right. It's not as though they're they're rooted in him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the most typical objection is uh, that that morality is, is founded in the very nature of God. So it's not arbitrary, yeah. right? Right, um, right. And, and, and that's discussed more in, in that episode, uh, number 23. Now, as a quick note, the first and most obvious problem to this, to claiming that, you know, objective morals are based in God, mm-hmm. uh, is that even if God was the foundation for moral facts, this in no way makes them objective. It may be true that these laws are universally enforced by the only being who has the strength to enforce things universally, mm-hmm. but that does Chuck not Norris? make them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, this doesn't make him objective. Rather, it makes them subjective because they come from a personal God. The assumption here is that, uh, you know, he who has the ultimate abilities, like creating universes, may do as he pleases. And because God created the universe, anything he does with his creation is morally permissible. Uh, this idea, you know, it, we commonly refer to it as might makes right. From this perspective, morality is really nothing more than the strong do what they have the power to do in the weak do what the strong allow them to. Oh, like uh, like Wall Street. Oh, that's that's the uh, that's the way <laughs> Wall much. Street works here in the United States. And I've actually known Christians who would finally concede that point because you push them further enough, and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, obviously it boils down to might makes right, but they're okay with this because uh, they just maintain their side has the well, might. right, right. They just maintain that you know. God, by definition, is the own is is the mightiest thing, and it will never change. Right. So it's not as if it's willy nilly. Whoever happens to be stronger, right? Right, right. You don't have have the battle for power like we see in other mythologies. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, but today uh, I have an additional objection to the moral argument. Um, a final nail in the cross. <laughs> so in this argument, the theist wants to say that if we believe in objective moral values and duties, the only way one could possibly make sense of this is to credit them to God as their as having their objective ontological foundation. <clears throat> that is to say that, you know, if we believe that some things are objectively wrong, like perhaps torturing babies for fun, uh, then we waterboarding, <laughs> which I'm, always what? comes up, torturing babies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why? There's not a Christian apologist who doesn't. Always, always got a reference torturing babies. One day you're going to find something terrible in their basement. Like hacking skin (laughs) off their genitalia, for example. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Dr. (laughs) Professor. So, yeah, if we believe that things are objectively wrong, like torturing babies, then we already believe in God or in some kind of transcendent moral framework with which we could possibly make such a judgment. Because their claim is that everyone believes this, that that, that certain things are objectively wrong and they're not up for debate. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's their claim. Uh, however, I want to argue that this is actually completely blasphemous and just an absolute heresy. Uh, all real Christians should work to condemn those false teachers and apologists that seek to popularize this argument. The Bible makes it clear in several places that truths about what is moral and what is just are not actually founded in the very nature of God. That's completely unbiblical. 
Rather, such truths stand outside of God in some kind of platonic realm that we may or may not have an understanding of. This is the biblical understanding of moral foundations. So rather than discuss, you know, how the ontological relationship between moral values and God actually plays out or the biblical limitations of our moral knowledge regarding the goodness of God, I want to turn our crosshairs to God to show the embarrassing state of his moral epistemology to drive this point home. Because when one comes across certain narratives in the Bible, it should cast a rather large amount of doubt on the idea that God's very nature is the foundation for moral goodness. So in Genesis 18, uh, we read that God has plans to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. He seems a bit shy to tell Abraham at first, but he eventually does so. And, and, mm-hmm. and we, soon learn, we soon learn why God is shy to tell Abraham. Abraham apparently is appalled at God's plan. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous within it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So Abraham here is clearly appealing to an outside standard, a standard that is outside of God's nature, outside of God's initial uh, moral intuitions about the situation. Which is wipe out both cities. Right, right. Baby with the bathwater. For, yeah, forget yeah. who could possibly be righteous, however the the proportion of righteous to evil people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if divine command theory were correct, this question that Abraham raises, you know, should not the 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 creator of all things do what is right, would be a completely incoherent one. This is after the flood, right? So he's already has a track, God oh, has yeah. a track record right. of right. wiping out a lot of people. Right, uh, right. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, God agrees with Abraham on this point and says, if I find in, in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will forgive it for the sake of the 50. What? Does Abraham have a more complete moral knowledge than God? How so? Abraham gets God to forgive the city, uh, not only at, if there are only 50 righteous, but if there were 45, and then only 30, and then 20, and then 10. This story really throws a monkey wrench into the idea that God is the grounding for objective moral values and duties. Mm-hmm. The biblical understanding of the grounding of moral values is not God. Rather, it is outside of God. This is a knowledge we can come to wholly apart from the theistic framework of, of Christianity. What if somebody, wouldn't they argue, wouldn't Christian argue, though, that it's not that he changed his judgment of bad or good, but the numbers simply reflect his uh, his go-no-go decision to do the wiping out? That is, that they're still sinful, that, that people are bad, but just the action itself of wiping is just a matter of numbers at that point. Uh, like, if you can find 50, okay, if you can find 30, that he's still angry and he's still judgmental, but it's just like... Well, right, but notice that he wasn't even going to tell Abraham at first. He was just going to do it. I'm just saying that that's, I'm trying to think of what the objection right. would be from that point. Oh, of view. right, right. Well, and then, of course, he does it, right? He does wipe out the city. Right, right. Yeah, that's the, that's the strangest thing. And, and it seems cities. as though he does that out of a, oh, crap, let's blow everything up because there's some, you know, we've got to protect Lot and, and his family, right? right? So they're ex. Well, they're, not his wife. Not his wife. Right, right. right. So he finds or, this. Or his daughters. Who get him drunk and rape him immediately after. <laughs> yeah, those are the people we should be saving. Um, yeah, that's because he says, 
okay, well, if I find five good people, I won't wipe them out or right. whatever the number is. He finds Lot's family, which is the good family. And rather than saying, I'm going to spare the city to save these people, he says, I'm going to tell these people to run for the hills right. so I can wipe out the city. That's not, you know, that wasn't um, what he agreed to. Yeah, yeah. And also, there's another example of this. I just um, want to say in that case, Yahweh's way was the highway. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go Yahweh, hit the highway and get out of Dodge. <laughs> so uh, there's another example in Exodus. Uh, and, and I know that you recently read Exodus, reread it. Oh, dear it. God, yeah. And uh, do you remember um, at the, after the Ten Commandments had been given, uh, Moses does not come down from the from Sinai immediately. Right. And so the gathering below, they get pretty impatient. And so they melt, uh, you know, Aaron instructs them to melt their jewelry. Yeah. And they make a golden calf to start worshiping. So in Exodus 32, 9 through 14, uh, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with the evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by yourself, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars in the heavens, and all of this land uh, I have promised I, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And then it says, and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring to his people. So... There we have, you know, again, somebody appealing to an outside standard, Moses. Uh, he's appealing to a standard of fairness. He's appealing to the virtue of promise keeping mm-hmm. that God apparently forgets about every now and then. So he holds him accountable. This covenant thing isn't nearly so important to him right. when he gets pissed off. Uh, so he needs to keep reminding God of these things. God seems to be trying his best, and you know we should give him a pat on the back for that. <laughs> but he clearly requires a an accountability partner. Again, typically the the response you get from Christians and 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 Jews is that um, the judgment is still there. The people of Israel were still in the wrong and deserve to get wiped out. Mm-hmm. But that's a sign of his mercy his is that mercy. he could be talked out of. Right. right. That if you have a good defense attorney like Moses, uh, Mr. <laughs> Cohen. Uh, that, that, that uh, my, your honor, my clients really was – he wasn't in his proper state of mind. That you can talk God out of that and it's a sign of his mercy that he can be moved from his righteous judgment to mercy. Yeah. I, I, that, that kind of divine plan is so confusing after a while, <laughs> changing right, reactions. Because especially if, if he's Like someone... a suspended sentence. Yeah. Well, right, right. right. You deserve the sentence but we're just going to set it aside for – Reasons, you know. Yeah, which is one of the arguments we got about our, our Passover discussion, too, is that God's still condemning them. He's just letting them have a pass right now. Well, right. because typically they would say that the moral judgment remains. It's just the mercy uh, of the punishment that is. So he's right. still disappointed. He's you're, he's just not going to kill you right. right now. The I don't know. The, the morality of it gets very confused because mm. is mercy a more moral choice than justice? Yeah. The justice that they deserve what of being wiped out there? because they're worshiping a false god. Or is mercy better? And mercy was something that he had to be convinced 
to, whereas his natural choice is justice. Yeah, yeah. And and you have, you know, passages saying that God is all just and also ones saying that God is all merciful. Like what takes the precedent here? I, I believe there was a Simpsons where he had one of those holographic pictures where if you shifted the image changes and he was like, you know, <laughs> wrathful God, loving God, <laughs> wrathful God, loving God. It's both. It and so, uh, how you look at it. You know, so while we have these popular apologists like William Lane Craig or Frank Turek using this argument to demonstrate the necessity of God to explain our belief in objective moral truths, it is something that all Christians should be condemning. It's, this is clearly an unbiblical idea, saying that though moral truths are by definition a part of, of God's nature or what have you. Um, so, yeah, I would just encourage other Christians listening to this to, you know, heap scorn upon those <laughs> apologists forwarding this moral argument. No, I mean, not to get too psychological, but some listeners might be familiar with uh, the cognitive uh, neurolinguist George Lakoff, and he has this whole harsh father versus nurturing mother theory of oh, politics, right. yeah. mm. where, where conservatives appeal and use language that frames debates in terms of a harsh father model uh, or stern father model, where, where you need discipline um, and motivation that's a sign of love, is that your dad says you got to buck up and he's spanking you to make you a better person. Mm-hmm. Whereas liberals tend to use the language of of nurturance where, you know, you need to take care of people like a loving mother sort of thing. And that that's and that, um, you know, his thing is that 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 explains the duality of the way we see many situations where you could see it both ways. That is, uh, a conservative would say, yes, I am spanking, but it's out of love that I spank because uh, a stern father isn't loving a child by letting him have no discipline. And so uh, maybe I'm going out of limb here, but many religions are, I believe, obviously, this is what I think, that they're formed because of our psychological makeup and that we project onto gods and, and goddesses and such our own duality. And so since we do have conflict systems of like there should be a punishment for a retribution for sins, but there also should be forgiveness for sins. We make this kind of schizophrenic, you know, you know, duality into gods, and so we don't, we can't make up our mind. Sometimes God is wrathful and punishing because that's the way we feel. You should kick ass when somebody does something wrong, but then, oh wait, he should also be loving. But we don't want him to kick our asses when we screw and so up. So we project the confusion. So we project that confusion onto God, and we call it the Trinity. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm you. And you're me. <laughs> but right. we're, we're not the same. I'd sacrifice myself to appease myself. Right. So shall we move on to some God Thinks Like You? That, that moves seamlessly to God Thinks I, Like You. I thought so. Springtime for moral, moral psychology. There's all kinds. As if the listeners saw my recent talk, I talked about, like, for example, the different roots of morality and Jonathan Haidt's theory of like the different factors. But there's all kinds of other research. One of the interesting studies that came out recently that reflects what we were just talking about is, is the punishing, loving God aspect and how it actually affects moral decisions. There was a study that came out uh, by Sharif and Noran Zayan this year uh, that looked at people's honesty. Uh, and or cheating, however you want to look at that, uh, on a task, and as a function of not whether they believed in God or not, but what type of God they believed in, whether that's loving mm-hmm. versus wrath versus wrathful. And long story short is that what they did is in this task is they had people come in, subjects were coming in and doing like a computerized uh, task where they had to add up numbers that came up on the screen, and the experimenter says, oh, by the way, this program has a little bit of a glitch where if you if the pro if the problem math problem comes up 
after a few seconds, it'll actually give you the answer. So what you need to do is when the when the problem comes up, hit the space bar and that will deactivate that. And then they mm. leave the room. So basically wow. they were yeah. – it's, ah. it's baiting the hook. Yeah. Will the people play it honest and hit the space bar every time and add up their numbers or will they cheat and just allow the thing to give them the answer? Right. So this is typical in psychology. If you're ever, by the way, in an experiment, you're almost certainly being watched in whatever you do. So. Right. right. Um, so um, what they do is I've they actually – have never been asked to be in an experiment like well, this. Well, we need to have you come on in. I would love to be experimented on <laughs> psychologically. And your kids. We also need young, naive oh, hey, subjects. Sure. So we need them. I got, I got a whole slew of them. <laughs> you could spare a few. Yeah, right. The, uh, so what they did was that they had this task of cheating tendency or moral tendency, and they cross-referenced it by other measures of what whether the person believed in God and then the attributes of the type of God they believed in. And so there's measures that go all the way from God is all loving, nurturing, caring to God. The liberal is, fancy pants the, God. Yes, your mm. liberal ACLU God uh, versus a, <laughs> a harsh, wrathful, judgmental type God. Right. And so they created a measure of subtracting one from the other of where you were overall on a continuum of what type of God you, you know. And so some people or most people are in the middle, but some people lean more towards God as harsh and punishing. Some people lean towards. So is this the uh, the Fred Phelps, Rob Bell scale? Is that what <laughs> Each person has not, has a, on one shoulder a Phelps and the other shoulder. <laughs> So what they found was that, and this is why this study made some headlines on the, on the internet, is that there was no difference in cheating between religious and not religious people. Hmm. When you overall looked at it, religious people were no more or less likely to cheat. So, so there was cheating on both sides. Yes. But no more uh, overall. Being religious didn't predict. Right. What they did find, though, was that of the people who were religious, those who had the view more of a harsh, punitive God mm-hmm. cheated less. Hmm. The atheists were in the middle or the non-religious and then the people who cheated the most were the loving, nurturing God believers. Oh, wow. So the two extremes canceled out. They balance each other out so it comes out to equal to the atheists but you have the the scary gods going to smite me did not cheat and the loving God will forgive me cheated more than anyone else. Right. So Uh, you're, yeah. So what the authors interpreted this as mm -hmm. is along the lines of almost what we've talked before in the show about some evolutionary psych theories about how morality develops. They put this study in the camp of that. One of the reasons we have a transcendent God watching us is that promotes morality. And that if that's a judgmental God that, Oh crap, I better not do that. Because he's watching and will be displeased with me, mm-hmm. that enforces morality. Right. Uh, whereas if you believe there's no consequences or whatnot, that, that that would be, you know, so so this falls under the heading of maybe there is some benefits of certain types of uh, religious belief to promote morality. As far as as a parent, you probably would appreciate God as an extra pair of hands and eyes. Right. If you can get yeah. the kids to believe that. You better not screw up or God, God I wish you. I had that. <laughs> I wish I could See? say, hey, I'm, I'm stepping out for a few minutes. Um, don't do anything wrong. God's watching. <laughs> can't, can't Unfortunately, most as most people realize, the downside of that is that you can't even, you know, sit alone in a room without God's watching me. Right. He right. saw me touch myself. He's just me, me poop. Yeah, he's even watching me poop. Could you just take five minutes, God? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is uh, there's this is one of the studies that that uh, that looks at morality. But there's other ones. I I think that um, I, I chose a couple to talk about. It's actually in the the same one of them is in the same uh, journal that 
um, usually we talk about morality in the, in the context of being a disposition that you either, you know, it's something that's a quality of you. Right. But as you probably have heard in various areas of social psychology, they lean more towards it's situational, just like the uh, Milgram shock study or the, the Stanford prison study that most people right. given a prop, uh, cues in a situation, you can affect how moral somebody is going to act or mm -hmm. not. Um, and uh, th this is a study by a guy named Seroglau. Uh, he's a, a researcher in Belgium, and he has a whole series of studies on uh, laboratory studies of priming or activating, reminding people of religious messages. And this can be as something as simple as flashing words on a screen or having people solve puzzles where they embed religious words. Right. But what he, uh, what he was looking at was would exposure to religious cues or, or priming uh, temporarily, at least, affect somebody's uh, moral decision making. And in um, uh, one of these studies, what they found was that they were looking at a person's um, willingness to be retributive or vengeful against mm -hmm. uh, a supposed th partner that they were working with. Obviously, this is a psych study and the partner didn't exist, but they were told you're going to be working with somebody in the other room. And uh, this person is going to look at an essay that you write and give you some feedback on it. And so the experimenter acted as a courier. Here's uh, your essay back. Here's what the person wrote on it. And it was deliberately designed to be harsh, critical mm -hmm. feedback. So as far as you know, there's this person in the other room that just dissed your work and trashed it. So clearly this is a measure of are you then uh, pissed off enough to be retributive? And the experimenter in this study uh, in, in one of the conditions says, you know what? Uh, you can assign them some problems to do and they vary on a scale of being easy or hard, right. maybe I think you should give them some hard problems. I think their feedback was harsh, too harsh. Mm -hmm. You need to then give harsh yeah. Step tasks it up and back to them. For them. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you can see, again, they're baiting the hook to see would the person then act retributively and say, all right, here you go, and get back at the person, or would they be you know, magnanimous and say, no, we'll just let this one go. That's okay. They, they were harsh but fair. Uh, and some of the in the study, they actually had these people working at a task, and some people were primed or activated with religious words. They were doing again a task where uh, some of the conditions saw religious words pop up on a screen to activate that concept in their head. Mm -hmm. So the measure here was: would they? Uh, how many harsh, you know, uh, retributive um, problems would they give back to this supposed partner? And what they found was it interacted. That if the experimenter gave them permission to say, okay, I think you should go nail that person back. And if they were primed with religious words, then they were more harsh and vengeful. They were hmm. more harsh with the religious priming. That's with religious priming in combination with the experimenter giving permission to. Uh, I see. He actually found also that there was a, was a trait interaction is that the people, the subjects that tended to score higher on measures of submissiveness, that is uh, on, on a personality trait of saying whatever, I'll go with the flow, I do what other people want me to do. Those are the people that were most likely to give the punitive type responses Again, if they were primed with religious really, words. the submissive people were more likely to uh, so the, lash out. The rationale was for this, this is what we'd call an interaction effect. Either effect alone, what didn't exist, but it was the combo. The, the bad combo right. was give, reminded of religious words, given permission by the experimenter for those people who were more submissive. So would this be like a, a pastor or some religious leader saying, you know, by the way, blowing up an abortion clinic isn't the worst thing you could do. Well, that's that's where the debate leads is that is maybe what religion does. 
and this is in context, obviously, of other studies too, is not make somebody overall as a group more moral, nice, less moral, right. or uh, nasty, but where the prevailing social norms says, well, uh, let's say it's a good norm, help people, uh, give money to a food bank or sure. whatever, re- activating this religious concept in people's minds does result in good behavior because the social norm and for people especially who are submissive uh, in personality, they go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Oh, er- other people are building houses for p- the poor. I'm going to do that because my church told me to. But what if the prevailing norm is maybe not so nice? That is, uh, we don't like the gays or right. uh, this is an outgroup member. It's a Muslim or something like that. Those people that are reminded of religion, that activates also a go with the flow with a bad social norm mentality. Mm. And so this could explain a lot of the reasons why we don't find a lot of overall association with religion and morality or personality traits and morality. And that is that what the concept of religion seems for many people to activate is a group think mentality. Mm -hmm. And when you activate religion, it doesn't activate the concept of niceness. It activates the concept of, I'm going to do what other people are doing. Right. So that's why I think these sorts of studies actually provide one answer to that that question, uh, that there is no such thing overall as moral because it's all contextual. Moral is basically what you look around and for many people, it's what they see other people are doing. And so why would, what would explain, for example, why, uh, you know, 50 years ago you have a lot of the most religious people in the country, you know, throwing bottles and rocks at civil rights people or things like that right. or burning buses. I was just reminded of this because that Freedom Riders anniversary is coming up where oh, the yeah, people yeah. were integrating the bus lines. Mm-hmm. How come you have all these good Christian folk in Mississippi turning into these raging mobs? And that is because the norm at that place and time was for to be religious and white in the South meant to be a white racist, supremacist, a, white supremacist yeah. a racist, to be separation. Or where that was rooted in, I mean, slavery. Yeah. And so when right. you, for those people, when you activate a religious prime, we're going to meet in our lily white churches every Sunday and do that. The prime was uh, racism or, mm-hmm. or separation of the mm-hmm. races. And, and so it didn't activate moral morality. What we would judge as now as morality in those people, uh, they thought, it, though, it was a submissiveness to the social norm. So I'm, I'm looking for a lot of other studies to, to find uh, – to, to, to examine this question even more of what, what is it when you remind people of religiousness? What types of thoughts and associations do people make? I think one of the clues is that they tend to be uh, – it activates a groupthink mentality. Right, right, which is always dangerous. Which is dangerous when the norms tend to be uh, – we've all – Of course, if it's – yeah, I mean if it's right. a positive groupthink, give to the poor – Group that's fine, but that's why generally group speaking, think it up. group think it, it, it's taking the thought process out of the individual's hands, yeah, which is a dangerous situation. I think right. for many, uh, for many, uh, for a lot of people who are non-religious like us, uh, often our objection to religion isn't that people can never be nice or that right. it doesn't anytime make people nice. The problem we would have is that. Some, just like Justin was talking about, that we need to determine what's right or wrong by some sort of external standard, not whatever God or the church or my minister says or my family says, that there should be some sort of external standards where we say, how do we figure out whether something's good or bad? Uh, and that the Bible, uh, yes, there's an external <laughs> standard, and that by by saying just like well, it's whatever we tell you to do, that's that's not morality, that's obedience. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting point. Uh, let's take a look at our props and shit list, shall we? Uh, 
Props and Shit List is where we take a look at some of the stories in the news and give praise to those who deserve it and heap scorn on those who need it. Um, let's start off with props, shall we? Um, this is kind of exciting. Luke, you passed along this story from the New York Times about uh, Pitzer College in California, which has added a new major. And they have added the uh, study in secularism. You can actually major in secularism at Pitzer. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, the Pitzer, which is associated is a, in a chain of colleges, the Claremont uh, colleges there. That the, the um, one of the individuals involved about this, Phil Zuckerman. We've talked about him on our show before too, because he also has done work on, uh, on society without God. He's the one who traveled to Denmark and Sweden, and he wrote right, a book about right. how they're very secular. So he, he's a sociologist uh, out there, and uh, they, he's been working with other professors on establishing a secular major. So you would go and take courses on just like any other uh, study program from different disciplines on things like you know ethics and and history yeah, and, and, and some of the courses they, they mentioned in this article are um, God, Darwin, and Design in America, mm-hmm. Anxiety in the Age of Reason, and Bible as Literature, which is uh, it's a great place to get a Bible as Literature course. Mm-hmm. No, I've seen, like, if you look at some of the comments on that talk about this story, a lot of the people who are religious that are irked by this, because if you assume that universities themselves are already secular right, studies, that when you send your little... Right child off to the state university, they're going to come back as a communist, lesbian, you know, uh, whatever, right. vegan, that uh, that they would say, well, that's what universities are uh, in general, are secular studies. But I think the, the point of this program is that it would be specifically look at things like history and ethics and, and philosophy and religion from a secular point of view. Right. Right. Uh, Ken Ham, actually. I don't know. You guys know who that is, right? He's on the Mad Men show. His character. Is... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's John Ham. Oh. <laughs> Ken Ham is the president of Answers in Genesis. Yes. The, the Creation Museum. Yes. Yes. Uh, he says that the, the he says that this new department is further proof of the anti-Christian doctrine that awaits young, unsuspecting Christians attending secular universities. He contends. Get this. This is this is completely profound right here. Mm-hmm. He contends that secular universities generally educate their students with a secular approach. <laughs> what, whoa, whoa, well, well, <laughs> that's quite a claim. Yeah, jeez. And he 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 actually would 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 disagree with you. He says that it is an anti-God religion and that it it cannot be neutral. And so right. it's it's a religion based on man's word. He says. Which is why we should only teach God's word. And so what he's saying is he's saying that he's he's um, he's very much advocating that that parents do not send their kids to uh, these secular universities and and they stay to their their um, Bob Jones University, right? Their Bible institutes and their seminaries. And well, we we saw this all in Australia too. They're struggling with the integration of of ethics classes in right. schools, right. most of which religion has enjoyed a monopoly upon up until recently. Mm-hmm. And now when you uh, for some reason, many religious – well, obviously, they're threatened by when you can teach ethics, but from a standpoint that doesn't make any reference to religion, for example, that's very threatening. Or or the same with these classes are like history, you know. How do you – understand? it would be like basically Susan Jacoby's Freethinkers book. You know, you right. understand, holy crap, all this stuff I've heard about how 
you have to be religious to be a patriot or that the civil rights, you had to be religious. Or, not true. Yeah, not true. Yeah. Great book. We used to mention that on That's, every episode. I know. I think for our first dozen episodes, we talked about free thinkers. So, <laughs> um, so props to Phil. And we're going to be uh, – we'll hear more actually from him. He has a book coming out just as a little teaser. He has a book on apostasy coming out. He's, he's had interviews with a bunch of people who maybe, were religious and are no longer religious. Maybe we'll be able to get an interview with him. You're, you're buddies with him, I'll, aren't you? I'll work on it. We'll see what what can happen. Over on our shit list, this is a story also from the New York Times. Pastor is accused of helping to kidnap girl at center of lesbian custody fight. Oh, yes. This is a complicated story. Um, it starts off with a uh, lesbian couple where one of the partners... Uh, found Jesus. She happened to be the biological mother. Yes, she's the biological mother of their daughter. Um, but the other partner did have in the state, in one state, rights, yes. parental rights. Yes, she had parental rights in, in Tennessee. Okay. Uh, or, I'm sorry, not in Tennessee. No. In Vermont. Yes. Vermont, where well, they lived. Obviously. <laughs> It, so, and the two split up when the um, biological mother of their daughter um, became a Baptist and decided that homosexuality was evil. She became a, a uh, born-again straight person. And clearly hmm. that violated family values to have the daughter have contact with the other mother. So Right. So she took her away, took her to Tennessee, and then... Or uh, you're safe from the gay. Right, right. <laughs> And the um, other mother who had parental rights in Vermont um, sought custody and eventually um, for a while had no custody of the daughter because the other was in Tennessee and she was the biological mother. But then um, got right the right to um, at least parenting time and then full custody when the biological mother, the born-again Baptist – would not allow her daughter to see the other mother at all. So then the court said, okay, fine. Then she gets full rights to the daughter and the biological mother doesn't have any rights to the daughter if she's not going to play ball and let, let the other mother see her. So before the daughter could go to the so clearly, still lesbian mother. So being, clearly that, being religious that they should accede to the authority of the court and the best interest of the child yes, is what I'm is, thinking the story is going to end, Which is right? exactly what didn't happen. Um, the, uh, I mean, this custody battle yes. that, they've been, that they've been entrenched in has been going on for seven years. Yes, for a long, long time. In, in Virginia and Vermont courts. Yes. It's like, wow. And, and now the <laughs> most recent is the, uh, the biological mother, the born-again Baptist mother, no longer a lesbian mother, uh, ran off with the daughter, even though she now lo- no longer legally has parental rights. It's it's a kidnapping. Ran off to like from Tennessee to Alabama or where? Ran off to South America. Now, where would she have a place to stay in South America, Dave? Well, luckily. Huh. Um, Who would help her? Luckily, Flee she from has the law. friends in high places. Um, in, in Jesus land. In Jesus land. Um, and she has actually been um, helped out by uh, her Baptist minister and missionaries in South America who have taken her in to help protect this daughter from being taken back to the heathen mother who loves her and wants to raise her in an accepting society. So um, 
Now, there is actually an update on this story, too. It originally said that the um, pastor who was arrested for aiding and abetting with the kidnapping. Good. Yeah, international uh, parental flight, kidnapping. Flight from the law. Yep, he was a, a pastor was arrested for helping with the international parental kidnapping of the child. In the original story, it, they said that he had a relationship with Liberty University and a businessman who had denied accusations that he provided a house in Nicaragua for the fleeing biological mother and child. Um, the businessman as it turns out, does not have close ties or any formal relationship with Liberty University. The pastor, however, does. <laughs> so so that was the one correction New York Times had to make, is that the, the businessman doesn't have connections to Liberty University, but the pastor does. And uh, so this is, this is much bigger than just a mother kidnapping her daughter. She has been helped out by church officials to do so. Yeah. So once again, the triumph of religion fostering family values and respect for the law. Exactly. Right. Exactly right. Let's move on, shall we, to some polyatheism. We talked earlier in the show, uh, touched on the biblical account of the rapture in Revelation. Um, uh, and it's certainly not the only and far from the most entertaining end times prophecy there is. Uh, my personal favorite takes us back once again to Norse mythology and leads me to pose the question, are you ready to Ragnarok? Uh, the story of Ragnarok, recorded in the poetic or older Edda, is an eschatological myth or a myth of end matters, not to be confused with a scatological myth, which is a myth of matter from your end. Yeah, that was that was oh, really boy. well done. <laughs> oh, boy. There are very few rooms where that joke works. Um, Ragnarok. Is this going to be on the test? <laughs> uh, Ragnarok, for a long time, mistranslated as Twilight of the Gods, is actually the Doom of the Gods. Very dark, uh, very dark, foreboding title right there. Oh, so it's not about teenage vampires. All right. It is not. I like Wagner's uh, sure opera, The Götterdämmerung? Yes. The gods do not sparkle in the sun like a vampire. <laughs> no, um, they're all going to die. Uh, story begins with a series of winter following winter following winter following winter with no summer in between. Pretty much like the past season here. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, pretty yeah. much like West Michigan in any given year. Um and this period leads to a complete breakdown of society. Again, kind of like West Michigan in a normal year. Uh, family splinter, all morality dies. Then things get even worse. Okay, We have a whole breakdown of society, but that's the human world. That, in the grand scheme of things, not that important. Uh, one giant wolf will devour the sun while his brother devours the moon, and then the stars will disappear from the sky. So what we get here is very much a reverse creation. All of the things that were created start disappearing from mm. the sky. Then three roosters will crow. One alerts the Jotun, the giants who live in Jotunheim, and a quick point of clarification here. Those of you who have seen Thor, and by the way... I knew he was going to work in a Thor. Thor I had a stopwatch is running. awesome. Um, I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. Um, they take a few liberties with the mythology, which is fair because, you know, it's based on a comic. But the one thing that bugged me is that, according to the movie, frost giants live in Jotunheim, 
when in fact Jotunheim is where the regular giants live and uh, the cross giants live in Niflheim. Idiots. You're, you're uh, like those fans are going to show digress. up at the Comic-Con. Any questions for Natalie Portman? <laughs> yes, uh, in the scene with the frost giants, <laughs> technically aren't they just regular giants? Oh, and, and the other thing, speaking of the frost giants, uh, Lofi is the king of the frost giants in the movie, and in mythology, that's Loki's mother. Uh, gender switching. That's embarrassing. I know. Clearly they needed you for the script right for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they did just fine. Uh, the second rooster crows to alert the gods. Well, actually, it alerts Heimdall, who then blows his horn to alert the other gods in Asgard. Um, and then the third and final crow awakens the dead. Great earthquakes free Fenrir, the vicious wolf and son of Loki. Fenrir... Um, is a serious badass, and just as a small pup, he bit off the war god Tyre's hand. Wow. Yeah, and could only be bound by a magical elf-made chain, which is as thin as a piece of string. How do these Scandinavians? Yeah. It's all about blood <laughs> and guts is, and oh. biting, and now they're selling, like, furniture and building <laughs> Volvos. It's like, how does a society evolve that fast? Well, it's it's a, a long, strange trip, I'll tell you that. Loki's other monstrous son, Jormungand, the Midgar Serpent, begins to make his way toward land, causing even more massive earthquakes and storms. His breath stains the earth and poisons the air. Think Godzilla or Gamera, hmm. only more serpentine. Godzilla. Okay? Uh, the Jotun ship, Nagelfar... I love the names. I love names. Yeah. Uh, we'll break free and head toward the battlefield, as will the ship of the dead, led by Loki, the god of chaos himself. Alerted by Heimdall, the watchman, the gods will arm themselves, taking with them the denizens of Valhalla, whose, those fallen heroes whose souls were collected by the Valkyries and trained by the goddess Freya and the All-Father himself, Odin. Or... Uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins, who makes a really good Odin. He's a perfect <laughs> Odin. Um, all these forces... He ate his hammer with some fava beans. <laughs> and a nice Chianti. Uh, all these forces, the gods, the Jotun, the armies of the dead, the fire giants, Fenrir, the wolf, the Midgar serpent, along with elves, dwarves, and demons, will all meet to do battle in the field of Vigrid. Yes. Thor, the thunder god himself, will take on Jormungand. Thor will slay the giant serpent, but it will cost him his life. Godzilla versus a guy with a magic hammer. You get a lot of crazy stuff in Revelation, but you don't get that, okay? Mm. The god Freyr will be killed by the fire giant Surt because he foolishly gave up his magic sword years ago so he could marry a giantess. One-handed god Tyre and the monstrous hound Garm will kill each other in battle. Loki and Heimdall, who have a long-standing feud, will face off on Vigrid. Of course, Norse fans will remember that last time Loki and Heimdall faced off, they were both disguised as seals, and Heimdall slapped the snot out of Loki for a necklace, too, <laughs> no less. This time around, however, neither is victorious, and both fall in battle. Gods are dropping like flies, but surely Odin, the All-Father, Odin, the god of gods, will be victorious. No, sorry, even Odin is eaten by the wolf Fenrir. But, don't dismay, Vidar, the son of Odin, a god who exists purely to avenge Odin's death, 
Yes, he <laughs> is the god of vengeance for his father's death. <laughs> what a specific title. I, I know, right? And, you know, a limited job. <laughs> he tears Fenrir's jaws apart like King Kong versus that T-Rex. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, in the throes of the great battle, the evil fire giant Sirt is mortally wounded, and as he nears death, he flails around violently, setting fire to all the nine worlds. Asgard, Vanaheim, Midgard, Niflheim, Muspelheim, Helheim, Jotunheim, Alfheim, and the best, Silvartalfaheim. Hmm. That's the land of the dark elves. Um, Yggdrasil, the world tree, set aflame, will sink into the sea. Everyone dies... This battle is the antithesis of the big fight at the end of Lord of the Rings trilogy. What is it? Uh, Return of the King? There, nobody of any significance dies. You shall not pass. You have this giant battle, and no one we give a crap about dies, except <laughs> the <laughs> old king who is going to die anyway. Right. Here, everyone dies. And the more heroic the figure, the more brutal their death is. Which just leads me to believe that Tolkien, even though he took much of his characters and imagery from Norse mythology, never really understood the culture at all. There's no sense of that sacrifice. You gotta have death. You gotta. You have to. Well, after the world tree burns and everything sinks into the sea, a new idyllic world arises. Repopulated by the two humans, Lith and Liththrasser, who happened to hide in a cave before the world sunk into the sea, and a handful of gods who are reborn, including Baldur, the god of light and joy and beauty and puppy dogs and the smell of babies fresh from the bath. He's the god of everything good. Wickedness and misery are gone. A new heaven and a new earth are born. You can see some real similarities between the story of Ragnarok and Revelation. Possibly in part because there may have been some Christian influence on the tale of Ragnarok. And yes, though, Revelation has some pretty remarkably screwed up images in it, like beasts with many faces and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's almost on par with the hordes of zombies, wolves, giants, monsters, and gods of Ragnarok. But the thing to me that I really appreciate about Ragnarok, above the story of Revelation, is that it doesn't concern itself with salvation or rapture or judgment of any kind. The story is not there to instill fear. It's not there to try to force people to convert. It's not a repent the end is nigh kind of story. It's just there for entertainment. Pure destruction for the sake of destruction. Absolutely. Just like World Wrestling Federation. Yes, that's what we love <laughs> about the Norse. Given a choice of eschatological myths to teach your children for entertainment purposes only, of course, my vote goes for Ragnarok, which is, of course, one more end-of-the-world prophecy worth not believing in. That's all for this week. Until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, gripes, and suggestions to doubtcast at gmail.com. Join us at the forum, doubtcast.forummotion.net, and... By the time you're hearing this episode, our um, finalists in the logo competition for our new logo will be posted on the forum. Mm. They're not up there when we record it, so I can't tell you exactly where they are, but it'll be easy to find by the time the show is up. Um, we've narrowed it down to a handful of them for you to vote on, and then 
in a couple of weeks, uh, the Doubtcasters will get together and, and pick regardless of what you like. As a side note, uh, the uh, it's amusing to have an a email with a heading that says Logos, and my finger hovered above the delete key until I noticed, why would Dave be sending me a thing on Logos? Uh, oh, Logos. Logos. Not Logos. Nice. Yes, yeah. Delete, not delete. I, I almost yeah. deleted it. Um, and, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at slash Doubtcast um, or go to our store at Zazzle.com slash Doubtcast. Pick up some cool T-shirts. Um, if you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast aggregator you use. And always spread the word. Um, tell your friends, tell your family to tune in to the show. Um, that's the best thing you can do for us. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>